I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the Power Platform Show. Full show notes for this episode can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 298. Before we chat with today's guest, here's a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by ISV Connected. Are you serious about your ISV business and how it's doing compared to other ISVs? Comprehensive ISV industry benchmarking is one of the things you'll discover at isvconnected.com. Navigating the Microsoft ISV landscape is easier with friends. Sign up today at isvconnected.com. It's totally free. Now, let's get on with the show. Today's guest is from Greenville, South Carolina. He's the founder and CEO of YesFlow. He serves as an MIT Venture Mentor to a select group of startup companies within the next community. He enjoys college football, golf, skiing, mountain bike racing, off-road triathlons, and travel. You can find him on Twitter at Millwood. Welcome to the show, Scott Millwood. All right. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Wow. It's good to have you on the show. You're one of those people that, you know, through my career of 18 years now in the space, I've always seen your name. You've been around a long time in this BizApp uh, community. <laughs> yeah. Perseverance pays, I guess. You know, I have been around it a long time. You know, we started with uh, Dynamics back at uh, version 0.5, I think, in uh, 2003. Incredible, incredible. Right, right at the very early days. Right, right. We were, uh, you know, making a bet early on that uh, Microsoft would do something special with uh, with a CRM product. And it wasn't very special at the time. In fact, it wasn't very good at the time, as you, as you probably uh-huh. remember. We were betting that, uh, you know, all of the force and power of Microsoft would be brought to bear on it and scale it up to the enterprise. And Lo and behold, here we are, you know, so many years later that uh, the Power Platform is a, a centerpiece of, you know, Satya's overall dynamics or overall Microsoft strategy. Yeah, so good, so good. So before we get in and, and discuss your journey and and the ins and outs of the different organizations you work for and what you're doing today, tell us a bit about, uh, you know, where you live, uh, your family, and, uh, you know, I, I listed there a whole range of activities that you're into. What's uh what's top of mind from you from a fitness perspective at the moment? Ah uh, yeah, so well I live in uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, with my family. I've got uh, my wife that I've uh, been married to for many many years. Uh, we met in college, and I've got two sons, uh, one in college uh, at Washington and Lee, and another senior in high school that's uh, getting ready this month to pick his college. So we're wow. busy with that. Uh, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a, a lot of activities uh, that I like to pursue. Uh, you know, mountain biking, as you mentioned, is one of those. We're right here in the the foothills of South Carolina, which is about 
three hours from the ocean and an hour from the mountains. So we're in an ideal spot for all sorts of outdoor activities. Um, and then, you know, outside of fitness and, and staying on a bike and, uh, you know, triathlons and things like that, I spend a decent amount of time uh, with a, a, a venture organization that uh, I started with a couple of other uh, technology founders about 13 years ago called Next. And we are essentially an entrepreneurial support organization. We help other entrepreneurs start, uh, fund, and scale up their businesses so that they can, you know, one day uh, enjoy an exit, hopefully. Awesome, awesome. And of course, you know, one of, one of the big businesses that you've worked in is Customer Effective. And uh, that's, I think, where I first came across you. And particularly, you know, folks like Scott and Joel uh, worked for you back then. Of course, Scott's now in Microsoft and Joel's in Hitachi. Tell us about Customer Effective. How did that get going? And ultimately, uh, what was your exit from that organization? Yeah. So, um, you know, we started that back in uh, 2003 and it really came out of some work that uh, that I was doing inside our previous company, a company called DataStream Systems that uh, that we had taken public and and uh, grew to over 100 million in revenue, a thousand people. And uh, we had implemented Onyx as our CRM system. And you know, Onyx is one of those old client server systems that was new and fresh at the time, a bunch of uh, Seattle guys uh, that, that had started that. Um, and we were struggling with uh, getting people to use it. So I had ventured out to Seattle and talked to Microsoft about how we could possibly tie together Onyx with Outlook, because that's what everybody uh-huh, was using uh-huh. to you know, manage contacts and email, et cetera. And uh, that's when I was introduced to the, to the uh, CRM team who had just done a small acquisition to get going. And we saw uh-huh. kind of the handwriting on the wall that you know, if Microsoft put their effort behind joining together Office with a real SQL database that, uh, you know, was focused on CRM, that that could be a real success. So uh-huh. I came back and, and started doing a little bit more research uh, and and uh, figured out that, yeah, this, this could be the real deal. So we were early on kind of backstage, if you will, on what Microsoft was planning with B1. And, and so I decided that uh, uh, I'd start another company. And we were in the midst of, of exiting DataStream to a company called Infor that you're probably uh-huh. familiar with. So they yep. bought us on the public market. And, um, and then I started this one with uh, Michael Elliott, who was also uh, uh, one of my cohorts at DataStream, um, with me running sales and marketing and Michael running services and operations. So we got that going in 03, uh, ran it for uh, about 10 years and uh, uh-huh. through a, a bunch of interactions through um, Microsoft's Inner Circle program. We met uh, Mike Gillis uh, and Gary Peterson uh, uh-huh. and some other folks that were uh, uh, you know, had been acquired by Hitachi. Uh, Mike Gillis approached me at, at one of those events and said, hey, you know, Hitachi's looking to expand. They're going to buy a CRM player. Uh, and, and we got into discussion. And about a year later, um, we were acquired. So we became part of the Hitachi Solutions family in 2014. And uh, I lasted about two more years in, in you know, kind of big corporate role in, as a global EVP over marketing and realized like, ah, you know, this the, the giant companies are, are not my bailiwick and uh, kind of got the itch to start another smaller deal. And that's what we're doing now. Nice, nice. So, so through that customer effective um, period, I'm interested to know. You know, I, I have a, a range of partners listen to calls like this, and you were involved in particularly marketing and sales of that organization. 
how, how, you know, what was the key things that you found worked from a customer acquisition point of view? Oh, I think the, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's just good, solid principles of, you know, listen, uh, pay attention to what the customer or prospect is really asking for, you know, listen some more. Uh, for us, I think with customer effective for it to be, you know, done right is, is we had to create a culture. Uh, and that culture, you know, comes from kind of defining some core principles and listening was one of those core principles is it's hard uh-huh. to consult if you don't pay attention to the basics. And uh, so I think, you know, really being able to serve a customer means that you've listened to what they're saying and you've interpreted that into a way that eventually can turn into a solution that they will actually use. And, and you know, I think, again, it sounds very simplistic, I know, but having a culture that that becomes a key value for just, you know, is it just takes some time to get everybody on the same page to uh, make those things important and to practice uh-huh. them, you know, to actually do it every time you're in front of a customer, whether you're yeah. selling to them or whether you're, you know, delivering the solution, just, just listen, uh, you know, pay attention. But, but if we take one step before that, how did they find out about customer effective? Like if we look at your first 10 customers that you put on the books, how did, how did they find you? How did they know to put their trust in you and, and a very immature dynamics product at that point? How did you get on people's radar? Right. So I don't think this really applies to any startup is, you know, we started with just a couple of prospects and, you know, these prospects were, um, you know, folks that were small. This was, uh, I think our first customer was a company down in Savannah, Georgia called Go Software that had under a hundred people. They were looking to replace ACT. I mean, you know, that's that's pretty, sounds kind of crazy, but, uh, you know, we um, uh, approached those guys through a relationship with Microsoft. Microsoft had uh-huh. I'd been out and talked to all the Microsoft reps and made our name known that we were out doing some things. And um, we landed that piece of business. And and what we recognized is that we needed a reference story. We needed to have a success. Uh-huh. And Microsoft badly needed success stories then. So we just dug in and worked really, really hard over the course of about six months to make the product successful and it was uh-huh. not without problems, right? I mean, there were yeah. there were issues that, with that product in the early days, uh-huh. and and yeah, we knew. I mean, we it was a version one product. We knew there were going to be problems, but we persevered, uh, and and really, we just showed the customer a lot of attention and love, and and we overworked what we were, you know, had committed to develop. We probably lost a ton of money on that thing if I look back on it, but we turned those guys into a success, and they became a reference for us, and so they were gotcha. beating the drum. We did a published story for Microsoft on that. Um, we got them on stage at a at a you know an event, and that built the 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 whole culture around just building reference stories, right? Just make your customers successful, help them achieve value, and then get them to tell their story. So that became our our really marketing plan is building great customer success stories. And then we would take those stories around and kind of, kind of get Microsoft folks really, you know, capable of telling the story. And then that Uh would lead to a reference back to us. So we, that's how we sort of built that whole thing is just customer stories. I like it. I like it. Now you mentioned culture. And, and I always find, you know, culture is an interesting thing. And, you know, they, all the books tell you it flows from the top. How do you really create a culture within a team, particularly a startup team like that, that reflects where you're going as an organization? 
Yeah, you, you really you just got to walk the walk. You know, it's one thing to say put a bunch of words down on a piece of paper and and you know uh-huh. put it on your website, but you know every day you have to live it. So you know, in those kind of key cultural things of like listening, if you're not a good uh-huh. listener, but you tell everybody to be a good listener, uh, you know that's not going to play out really well. And I, I think the kind of the golden rule as well was one of those that we um, instituted that. Just treat customers as you would want to be treated. Uh, do uh-huh. the right thing. You know, very simple things that you, you sort of take for granted. But um, you know, once you distill those down into values, and your and your team sees you executing on those values, then they follow suit. And you know, beat the drum on that incessantly. Right? And just keep telling the stories about how you help the customer achieve their goals. Make it about the customer, not about you tell those stories over and over and over. And eventually you kind of build up this tribal knowledge. But, you know, one of the things that we did early on, Mark, that I think is, um, you know, very helpful for startups is we built a a manual, if you will, sort of a, uh-huh. what we called the franchise model that we we took took that idea from a, a book called E-Myth uh, uh-huh. that we no. took to heart. And, and we wrote down everything that we do and how we do it, including uh-huh. our values, but also our processes so that anybody coming in new could quickly understand what we were all about uh-huh. and be able to repeat it. So that whole repeatability thing is kind of a core value of the franchise model is just being able to give something to someone and say, hey, if you run into these issues, this is how you handle it. If you run into these kinds of things, here's how you handle it. And then you just bang it home, you know, repeat it over and over uh-huh. and over again to your team in every meeting at every opportunity. I like it. I like it. How did you not get distracted, you know, and, and what I mean here is Microsoft, you know, when they see success, they'll often encourage you to take up other product lines of theirs and go to market with those as well. How did you really stay focused and not uh, spread yourself too thinly um, as an organization? Yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, and you're right. Uh, they did um, come at us with everything from, you know, SharePoint to Exchange uh-huh. to uh, you know, of course, all the accounting products when they were uh, when that was just yeah. rolling in, Great Plains and the and, and the like. Um, we had had some experience in in our prior company with DataStream, where we stayed very very focused on a narrow uh, you know a narrow side of a, an area called asset management, uh, which uh-huh. is you know maintenance software. And so we knew that you could build a big company based on a niche. And so uh-huh. we just stayed true to our strategy of only doing CRM. Uh, and so we deflected a lot of work to and referred it to partners. So we became uh-huh. very good at partnering with, you know, the Great Plains guys uh, and partnering with the SharePoint guys and partnering with uh-huh. the infrastructure guys. And we kind of stayed in our lane and played well with others. Uh, so we learned to collaborate in the channel. Uh, and that got us referral business from them as well. Uh, and and it, I think over time, you, we were a specialist already in Microsoft, a specialist in CRM. And then we eventually became a specialist in financial services within that. So we kept uh-huh. narrowing down our focus as Microsoft brought on more and more partners, we became a narrower and narrower focused partner. And it just uh, became part of our specialization strategy. 
Incredible. So if we fast forward to, you know, you're thinking of exiting, you're, you're having those conversations, what kind of ducks did you have to get in a row for, you know, because uh, a lot of the research I've done on on exits, they, they generally take around, oh, sorry, exits, acquisitions, they're around a two year process of, you know, due diligence, uh, you know, looking at key metrics to to set the buy figure, things like that. What were what was that time frame for you? What were the kind of key things that you had to get in place to ultimately get to that uh, point of being acquired? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We had started out the business um, with a focus that that we probably would exit, uh, you know, in a in a matter of time to a larger player. And we thought it really would be a system integrator and we thought it'd be a global Uh system integrator. We just didn't realize it would be as quickly as it was. So we were doing pretty good record keeping and having audited financials and things like that. Uh Because we had acquired in our prior company, five companies. So we knew what to look for. We knew the markings of a good acquisition. So we wanted to set ourselves up to be eventually a good acquisition. Uh-huh. What, what we really had to get right was our own headset, honestly, because we were not looking to be acquired. Uh, we had you know, plenty of, of runway in front of us to continue to grow. Uh, uh-huh. And we were, you know, we were doing really, really well. And, and so getting our own heads wrapped around the idea of being acquired sooner than we had anticipated took a little doing. It was really just um, more of, I guess, digesting that thought process. You know, the, the record keeping and the, you know, the like uh, didn't take that much effort because we'd sort of pre-planned it. But uh, getting yourself ready to be working for somebody after not working for somebody for 10 years, that was, <laughs> that, that's a different, that's a different mindset. Yeah. And so, so what were those, the kind of key metrics that the buyer was looking for, you know, from a, a Microsoft partner, you know, outside of obviously the financials, were there any like key metrics around uh, the repeatability of your processes? Like you mentioned, was there things around like the management layers that you had in place? You know, what were the things outside of the, the straight dollars and cents kind of a part of it that they were looking for? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's you know, there, there's there's valuation metrics around growth rate and margin uh-huh. uh, and, and things like that. But I think one of the key things that that's a little bit of an intangible is: have you built a business that can run without your leadership team? Uh, uh-huh. You know, or, and, and and that sort of speaks to the repeatability. So yeah. we had built another layer of management. We were pretty flat, but we had another layer of leadership that wasn't just myself and Michael Elliott. Uh, that if we were out, the business could thrive. And, and I think that was one of those key things that, uh, that Hitachi really liked is the fact that you know, they, they probably saw the handwriting on the wall that a couple of entrepreneurs are going to eventually leave. Uh, we lasted longer than most. We, we did make it uh, almost three years, actually, before we were wow. uh, before we exited. And to this day, uh, you know, Tom Galambos, who who uh, leads that uh, that Hitachi Solutions business now, has said that it's the best acquisition they've ever done. Uh, so I'm very proud of the fact that you know we we provided them with a really strong foundation to get into uh, CRM. They had had done a little bit on their own, but they really need to accelerate it. So I think that leadership team that we had. Uh, that we had you know, curated over the course of time that was just just you know underneath us uh, was kind of the key to it all. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions uh, that you know pop into my mind around Hitachi, but before I go there, tell me about 
um, skill, you know, uh, development of skills, leadership and talent within customer effective. And and how did you, you know, like it's kind of like in, in my entire career in the space, there always seems to be a shortage of good practitioners, you know, that can turn, that can implement um, there's just more projects and there are skills. And I feel today more than ever in the era of power platform that this is, you know, a true story, you know, and I'm talking about those key roles, like those that are broad architecture skills, you know, um, and, uh, and implementation, you know, uh, functional consultants, architects, developers, how, how did you make sure that you were fostering top talent and, um, retaining top talent? Um, yeah, you know, it starts with really the recruiting side of things is, is you know, getting people on the team that have solid character and that fit uh-huh. your culture. Uh, you know, a lot of times people will hire other people for what they know, um, uh-huh. and that can be a mistake. You, you really should hire for who they are. Uh, you can teach people skills, but you can't change a person's character very much. And so we put a lot of effort into understanding a person's character before we would bring them on board. Now, you know, you can say that, but at the end of the day, that person also has to be able to go out and do the job. So they do have to know some things and do have some skills. But character was a big part of that. Then you know, helping those folks to grow is a matter of investing in them. So we, we uh-uh. put programs in place to invest in people, to get them trained up, to you know, allocate enough time in their you know, utilization programs to spend time investing in themselves. So get certifications, become an MVP, blog. Uh-uh. Right. You know, we made those things very important. In fact, we bonused on blogging. We bonused yeah. on MVP. Right. We, we actually helped um, our first couple of MVPs to become MVPs by paying them an annual bonus for becoming uh-huh. an MVP. Now, that yeah. seems crazy now, but at the time, it wasn't something that, you know, a, a young person coming in sees like, oh, I, I need to spend time becoming an MVP and spend time on these chat, you know, on these chat boards to answer uh-huh, questions uh-huh. like that improved our brand. And it also improved their personal brand. And it really yeah. indicated to them that we're serious about their career growth and for them to become someone that's important in the industry was good for them, but also really good for us. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, invest in people, right? Pick the right people and invest in them. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, Joel's team now at Hitachi is, I think he hands down has the largest MVP group in the world of any organization. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely phenomenal. And uh, in fact, I'm interviewing uh, later today another MVP who today is her first day on the job at Hitachi. And uh, and um, yeah, they're definitely sucking up the MVP community. Now, w- w- my question for Hi- uh, around Hitachi and their appetite for biz apps is, is, is what I want to focus on a bit. How did you know, a Japanese company like this decide to get into the the Microsoft BizApp space, specifically Dynamics at that time. And why I ask that is that, you know, across my career in running um, business application businesses focused on specifically Dynamics 365, the CRM component or customer engagement component, rather than the financial component, the RP type 
products was, you know, the ERP guys would go, man, you know, how do you make money? How do you stay profitable? Because we make, you know, massive amount of uh, money on our implementations where the CE projects look, look, you know, way smaller. And so therefore, from an acquisition point of view, what, how did Hitachi, you know, become aware that this was something that they needed to focus on in the future and build, you know, uh, you know, acquire companies, build, build business around Microsoft business applications. Yeah. So, you know, at, at the top level from Hitachi's perspective, you know, they had a strategy of, of building revenue outside of Japan. Uh, and, and so they were looking for uh, and are still looking for service companies in the U.S., uh-huh that produce good margins. And, and so they identified, you know, the, the dynamics channel as one of those. And their first, uh, first acquisition into that space was a company called iteration two that was headed up by Mike Gillis. Uh, and, and iteration two was doing primarily ERP work. And, gotcha. uh, but Mike uh, being a smart guy that he is also recognized that, uh, that CRM was on its way up and was really where the fastest growth was happening. And, and so Mike started a practice inside, uh, you know, iteration two, which was really Hitachi solutions then. Uh, uh-huh. and that's how we got to know those guys is those, those guys were showing up at these inner circle events. We were showing up there. We we're kind of bumping into each other a lot and sort of acknowledging, that we were really great in our space, they were really great in their space. And when they decided that they were looking for more growth, uh, they looked to the CRM space because it was faster growing than what they were doing. And um, uh, so I think, you know, the the progression there, I'll give all credit to Mike for recognizing uh-huh. that CRM was going to be a faster growth place, a faster segment than than the ERP growth was going to be. Yeah, they they've now picked up some BI talent as well through their last acquisition. Yeah, yeah, I met Mike maybe two and a half, three years ago in Phoenix um, at a conference. It was the first time I met him. Um, the other th- the other question is, and, and and then we'll move on and get into what you're up to now. Is is Hitachi has executed really well in, in of course the Americas, really well in Europe. Uh, I know a lot of folks, uh, you know, in that team there um, from my time in London, but why why nothing below the equator why haven't they as an uh, you know i don't see the band big across australasia asia anywhere anything like that yeah that's a great question um you know and you would think that that would be just a natural right is is coming out of uh coming out of japan that that would be a natural uh-huh. fit um uh, you know, it, that's a tough one to say mark I, I don't have a great answer on that of why not you know it's um uh it's a tough market um I think a lot of these things really come down to uh, you know the, the the giant size organization where there are you know three hundred and sixty thousand employees and uh, yeah. you know hundreds and hundreds of very autonomous companies that report up. It's hard uh-huh. to get all that aligned. and And while we like to think about you know dynamics as being global and even the implementations being global, most of the implementations that that I was personally familiar with that were, uh, that were, you know, quote unquote global were really the Americas and Europe. And, uh-huh. and then you had, uh, you know, things that would come out of, out of, uh, uh, you know, China or Japan or, uh, Singapore, or, uh, you know, anything in, in that realm in the, in the far East that was, uh, a very different approach to uh-huh. how they leveraged, uh, system integrators. 
and a very different approach, even from the corporate customer's perspective on how they would buy. But that, yeah. that really doesn't answer it completely. Yeah, because not even from a global, as in like, um, you know, a global project perspective, you know, I worked for four years in Australia and uh, it truly is the land of milk and honey and opportunity for anyone in biz apps, just phenomenal, you know. Um, and and that's a market, you know, I've seen KPMG come into the market, EY come into the market, uh, Deloitte's, PwC, all those kind of big players are all setting up practices in the space. And then there's a couple of um, big brands that are noticeably ab- absent, and Hitachi is one of them, IBM is another one of them, and it just surprises me why, why particularly, you know, because Australia is just such an, a massive opportunity, six six states, e- each run their own governments, each, so there's just in PubSec there's a massive opportunity, let alone then the phenomenal number of businesses that, um, you know, that are paying top dollar because to find um, talent is just there's there's more projects than there are people. Yeah, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me to see, and again, you know, I'm, I'm speaking out of school here a little bit, but it wouldn't surprise me to see a good proper acquisition solve that problem, uh-huh. uh, you know, for Hitachi. I mean, it's it, it, having a, a true global practice is definitely something that was um you know, front and center in what they were doing, which is, has led to, you know, all of the acquisitions that they've done is just trying to knit that together. But, you know, buying their way into uh, Australia would probably make sense over the course of time. Yeah. Yeah. Barhead would be their, probably the only business that would be on their radar then for that. Um, because as I say, the, the, the big uh, implementers are kind of probably unlikely to sell their businesses off and all the little ones have been vacuumed up over time. So by DXC. They need to find the customer effective of Australia. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that as say DXC went through a couple of years ago and kind of acquired them all, you know, those, the little ones. So it's interesting. But what I'm noticing is this whole, you know, cyclical process. Then you get like senior consultants that go, hey, let's go out on our own. They go out, they start practices, they start to grow quickly, and then they'll be the next acquisition targets, of course. That is it. Yeah, just reinvent. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, you obviously exited Hitachi after three years. What was what was your next venture and 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 what's that got you doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the venture we're in today is called YesFlow. And um, this really grew out of the pain that we saw with uh, engagement and adoption of, of CRM. As, uh, you know, it, it, it's very difficult for users to use software, period. It's just all software, enterprise software in particular, is difficult. And and Microsoft over the years and Salesforce over the years has made many, many attempts to sort of simplify. Uh, uh-huh. and, and yet we still constantly hear about engagement challenges. So in parallel to that, you know, the consumption model has been on the rise. And so those two things together, I think, created an opportunity for us to simplify the way that users interact with software, particularly on their mobile device. And so what we're bringing to the table is a natural language-driven engagement tool for CRM. So we run completely on the Power Platform. uh, And what we do is allow a user to speak to their mobile phone or their progressive web app on their laptop and just say what they want to do uh, and be able to record notes back into it just by talking. Uh-huh. So, you know, we're finding that, uh, you know, this is a great fit for folks in use cases like call reports, where uh-huh. they're gathering intelligence from the field, 
uh, and in insurance where they're prospecting and are meeting with people at different, you know, b- different points along the, the trail and need to keep up with their commitments uh, and, and making it very, very easy with this natural language experience is what we're all about. So, so when I hear natural language, I think of AI. I think that that must be part of the mix and, and understanding that. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're at, a, at a macro level really investing in AI. And, and just, you know, uh, natural language happens to be the forefront of that for us in that, you know, we think AI is going to transform just about every enterprise application uh-huh. known to man. And, and we happen to be in a great position to be able to kind of build one greenfield on top of what Microsoft's, uh, you know, Azure tools are already bringing for us. Uh-huh. You can put all this stuff together, but it takes a lot of time and effort to make it smooth and to simplify it. So we're leveraging everything that Microsoft has in the world of AI for you know, natural language and just packaging it up in a nice, smooth, consumer-style application so that you can literally download it from the app store, get it on your phone, put in your URL for your instance of Dynamics and immediately start using it. And so that's, you know, that's sort of that simplification process. And then once you've got it in your hands, we're giving the user, uh, again, I'll call it that consumer style application, but it really is just deep personalization. So Uh that as a user, I've got all of my contacts that are coming in from my iOS you know, phone list, for example, uh-huh, uh-huh. that I can blow those right into my Dynamics instance, but I can also maintain all of that nice flexibility around tagging, around filtering and sorting right local on my device in a way that is super, super easy, that feels like something that is not an enterprise app. It's quick, it's simple, it's, it's uh, you know, recognizes my you know, unique language and the way I speak. So we're uh-huh. just, you know, we're bringing a different experience altogether to the Microsoft uh, Dynamics, uh, you know, application set. It's interesting that you say that and that, you know, for a long time, business software always seems to be clunky and slow and consumer software seems to be fast, quick, easy to pick up and adopt. And and what you just said there sounds like that you have created software that is, you know, it doesn't need a massive manual to start using it. You can get up to speed. You can run with it very quickly. And it, it's driving value uh, rapidly rather than the, you know, click here five times <laughs> to get to here and and add a note into the system at this point. You know, look, we're, we're big fans of the power platform. We're big fans of power apps. But what we find when we go in and talk to, you know, to to users is they don't really understand any of that. They just know what they hold in their hands every day. And what they hold in their hands every day is stuff like their Uber app or their Yelp app or their Facebook app. They want the enterprise experience to be like that. That's just super, super simple and very much a streamlined uh, type of experience. And, And then to put on top of that, that all you have to do is talk is just the easy, easy, easy way that we think all of these enterprise applications are going to go in the future. Like nobody really wants to hunt and peck on a keyboard on a laptop anymore, but even on a phone, using your keyboard is a bunch of thumbs and I have to be sitting still to do it. If Uh I talk, you know, talking to Siri is really easy. Talking to Alexa is really easy. 
talking to my Google Assistant is really easy. And those now, those devices are now in over 50% of homes and yep. people are doing it every single day. Now they're doing use cases that are pretty simplistic. You know, uh-huh. tell me the weather, play a song, whatever it may be. But now they're going to the office and they're expecting the the enterprise IT guys to be able to give them something that is that easy that says, hey, show all of my accounts in New York that bought over $100,000 worth of product XYZ last year. Uh -uh. We can do that. So we've got some stuff going on now that is just absolutely amazing where one of our customers is filtering on these very, very unique metal grades to figure out which customers to contact when they're trying to fill a position in their metal trading unit. And, wow. and the ability to just pick up the phone, push a single button inside the YesFlow app and start saying uh-huh. stuff like, show all of my shredded brass suppliers that I bought from in the past six weeks. Boom. Oh. That's on your phone. Now you can start calling them and making notes against them just by talking. Mm-hmm. Man, that's that's powerful. That's powerful. How, you're looking at quite a different business model than what you have in the past, though, although we've we've seen the subscription business model come into play. I take it this is a subscription-based. It's a, a SaaS solution as such. Exactly. SaaS solution. Uh, you know, this is based on users, uh, and it's based on usage. So we have a uh-huh. model that has a, you know, a base user load, uh, that is uh, just number of users. And then once you're past 50 users, it's based on total usage. So we're, uh-huh. we're of the belief that this consumption model keeps everybody on the up and up. You know, we have uh-huh. to deliver value and and keep the customer using it uh, and or, or we don't get paid. So we're on the hook to deliver value and they're on the hook to use it. And if they use it, we get paid. If they don't use it, we don't get paid. Yeah. Interesting. Man, powerful tool. Totally agree on the audio side. I run three different types of, of, you know, as an Alexa, a Google Home um, and Siri, and I use all of them interchangeably. Me too. And, you know, everything automated in in my place um, around those. So, and definitely it's missing in the, in the business landscape. Um, How, once again, I I asked that question, how are you acquiring customers? How, how is that word getting out about you and your fit, the product fit? Are you are you niche down into industry um, that you that you're getting your wins at the moment? How's that operating? So we we are, um, you know, we're we're really in that early experimental phase, uh, and we're working directly with some of these large. We got about a dozen customers that we're working with, and we're deep into what they're doing, and uh-huh. and we're doing a lot of the work that they're asking for. So you know, we're building around their use cases and just spending a lot of time listening and learning and watching and probing to understand exactly what those end users will do and what they won't do. And, and so our, our you know, attraction of customers has come from our past relationships with some of the folks that we worked with many, many, many years ago that had a good implementation of Dynamics, but their users weren't enamored with it. They were barely using it, even though they had spent millions of dollars to implement it the users were kind of like, meh, it's okay. So we've tried to turn that into something that they are that they love, uh, that they want to use every day. Sort of going from the you know the 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 stick to the carrot, so to speak. So you know we haven't done a broad based uh, you know marketing uh, approach to go out and try to get hundreds and hundreds of customers yet. We think eventually we'll do that. We'll probably do that via channel. 
today, we've been very much direct. We've been partnering, uh, I'll say partnering very strategically. Um, and, and a lot of what we're doing is building these lighthouse accounts. So it kind of goes back to you know, what I was describing earlier with customer effective days is get in, help the customer be successful, make sure you're adding value, build that value over the course of time by just getting it really, really right. We're getting our app and our service really, really tight so that when we do, I'll say, put it out to a broad-based market, that it, uh-huh. it's bulletproof and scalable. Uh, and that we've uh-huh. kind of soaked out all the use cases in a way that's very clear. Yeah, really good, really good. And of course, we'll make sure we put in the show notes there links to to what you're up to. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Fantastic. Right. So we you know, we've got a nice download off the off the app store that's uh you know really easy to see. We've got some good videos running on our website. So easy to check right. us out. I like it. I like it. Tell me your observations over time with Microsoft. And uh it's probably, you know, what last one or two questions I wanna ask is around, you know, Microsoft t- traditionally through all the conferences and stuff that both you and I have attended, you know, as partners are very focused on their partner channel. But what I've noticed in recent times is a switch to uh, a lot of direct to market. Microsoft are now uh, engaging, hunting down their own customers, you know, for for Dynamics and Biz Apps. And what 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 are you observing um, from Microsoft uh, in, in your view across the years? And then also, then what is the opportunity? For partner today in your mind and i'm talking about more the the si partner the the value added reseller um and even the isv in relationship to microsoft what do you see those opportunities are yeah 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 so you know it, it has absolutely changed over the course of time and it used to be uh you know back in the good old days it was uh the customer was owned by the si uh and microsoft was kind of along for the ride particularly in in you know enterprise apps and a lot of that was that the that Microsoft didn't have the type of sellers that understood how to sell large, complicated, uh, you know, uh, projects uh, or large, complicated, you know, enterprise software. Uh, but the, some of the partners did. That changed over time, and I think it was driven by uh, by Salesforce and and uh-huh. being competitive with Salesforce, where Salesforce was super direct and almost didn't didn't really like partners along the way. Um, Microsoft has had to come to bear with their own, I'll say, upgraded Salesforce, where Uh they've had to go get some people from other enterprise software companies that knew how to sell big deals directly to the uh, C-suite and how to win those deals. And so inevitably, the partners have been somewhat relegated to a different role. I don't don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's just a Uh different thing. So that SIs come in and instead of leading the software march, uh, they come in and sell their services value alongside Microsoft. And if they're not good at doing that, then that SI or that that uh, that Microsoft seller will go find someone who will partner with them and understand uh-huh. kind of which which role they should play in that sales process. So I think it's changed for the better in some ways, certainly better for Microsoft shareholders and Microsoft's uh-huh. own revenue production. Um, yeah. It's made it tougher for some of the SIs who didn't, I think, understand that change uh, as it was coming. Uh, and and I think it's um, I think it's also something that that it it's changed in the dynamic of the the money in the channel and that you know uh, today if you want to play ball with Microsoft at an enterprise level you've got to jump through a lot of hoops to get your software certified and you've got to pay Microsoft a fee to be in uh-huh. a deal 
And that's a yeah, you know, yeah. that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of folks who, you know, maybe don't understand the dynamic of the channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. A last question, and it's probably personally motivated in, in my own research, is that you know, in in the early days of doing projects, you know, you would sell to a customer a multi million dollar project, and you know, you'd go and build it for months, and there'd be progress payments, things like that. And we've gone to a a how do you offer services? How do you do those big projects where they're much more? There's a higher degree of subscription base, you know, in that. So long tail um, of the engagement outside of just SaaS licenses. I'm talking about in the vast space here. Did you ever come up with an effective model to kind of uh, still sell those big big deals with a more subscription component or was it more still the the upfront costs of the, the doing big implementations? Yeah, it's been a it's been a gradual progression on that and and you know, going back 10 15 years, of course everything was sold as a waterfall. Uh, you know, uh-huh. do your best to estimate phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, try to get paid on all phases. But, you know, maybe maybe phase three never happened. Who knows? Right. But uh-huh. the big waterfalls were tough to do. Uh, and and I think over time, the buyers have gotten smarter and the sellers have gotten smarter. And and the methodology for delivery has come a long, long way in that, you know, now it's iterative uh, agile and and you can do things that are a little bit more aligned to a subscription, but it's not uh, truly a subscription if it doesn't ever really recur. But yeah. it can be aligned to instead of project phases, it can be aligned to say two week sprints or four week sprints, uh-huh. where you have milestones and you've got deliverables that are that are very um, uh, evident, right, and and keeps everybody. Uh, accountable all the way through and through. So I think that for the smart SIs, they've adapted their delivery methodology and hopefully their their progress payments are more in alignment with the, the deliverables in a sprint rather than uh, a phase. Um, but, you know, the bigger the project goes, the more likely it is that that things get fouled up uh, and, yeah. the, and the SI gets behind and the customer gets mad and they withhold payment. And that's a that's a death spiral. Right. And so I don't know that we ever figured that out completely, but we did over the course of time shift to much more of an agile alignment. And and certainly in what we're doing today with YesFlow, it's it's all subscription based. But we also have some implementation that occurs in the first three to four months. And all that's done on milestones around uh, Sprint. So we run, you know, DevOps and we are very transparent with our DevOps process with the prospect and, you know, the customer Uh so that they see exactly what we're doing. And then we can show them software that's progressing, you know, on a weekly basis to show them, uh, you know, how their how their money's being spent, so to speak. I like it. I like it. Alrighty. Well, you know, I have a lot more questions, but we're running out of time and it's been such an interesting uh, episode to do with you. Um, uh, I always like to wrap up with some quick fire questions, but uh, before I get up, before I get onto those, who do you recommend as a guest for a future show? Um, Gosh, there's so many, so many good people that, uh, you know, that I'd love for you to talk with, Uh, you know, selfishly, I think a different kind of perspective on the development world around dynamics as a platform is probably our CTO, Maverick Garrett. Um, uh-huh. You know, he's been building on the platform for over 15 years. He ran development for Hitachi for a, a lot of time. And, but now he's down in there 
you know, writing code, uh, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. So he's kind of got uh-huh. all ends of the spectrum. Um, and then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is a guy like Mike Gillis, who yeah. I know it's not your typical sort of MVP that, you know, is down uh, sort of into the product. But Mike's a fascinating guy that, you know, is uh, cuts a, a broad swath in the channel. And I'm sure he'd love uh-huh. to spend, you know, 45 minutes or so with you. But. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll get you to, to uh, intro them. But let's uh, get on some quick fire questions. You bet. Okay. Would you rather have a cook or a maid? Oh, wow. I think probably a cook. Yeah, because uh, particularly after this whole pandemic experience of eating out and having so much delivery done, and we're in the middle of a house renovation, so we don't have a kitchen right now. <laughs> a kitchen would be a kitchen would be great, but a cook to be in it would be fantastic. I like it. What's the last product you returned? Oh, oh, let's see. I I returned a wetsuit not too long ago, which uh, oh. is kind of a strange one, but. Uh, you know, wetsuits are pretty particular. And you, once uh-huh. you once you finally shimmy into the thing, you know if it fits or not. And this one did not. Yeah, I like it. What book has had the biggest impact in your life? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand. I've never heard of it. Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, that's a, it's a good one. She also wrote The Fountainhead, which you probably have heard of. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just noting that down. I'll, I'll, I'll need to look that up. It's, a, it's quite a tome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I'm definitely going to take a look at it. Um, what's something you're self-conscious about? Ooh, self-conscious. Um, I'm a pretty overly confident person in so many <laughs> different ways. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I would probably have to say is uh, uh, as I am aging, you have a lot more to be self-conscious about. And and so uh, over the course of time, you know, you lose your hair, Mark, uh, you know, so maybe that's <laughs> that. the one. I don't know if I'm self-conscious. I think I've kind of embraced it by now, but you, know, you got to yeah. pick something. Mate, I've been bald for over 10 years now, so I definitely embraced that a long time ago. Yeah. Um, if you could change one thing about the way you're raised, what would you change? I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't I like change it. a thing. I, I wouldn't be who I am. I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin and 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 happy with where I've landed and have a you know wonderful life with a great family and and beautiful wife and uh, you know I think if I changed anything I might screw it up. Yeah. Last one. Who's the worst boss you've ever had? Oh, I had a guy um, that uh, uh, was at Dun and Bradstreet, my first job out of college. That uh-huh. was just the classic sales manager and had so many cliches that I just grew to detest this man. It was just, you know, it was just awful. And I I thought, is this what corporate America is all about? Is this what it really is? And it really almost turned me off completely on, on, you know, sales and sales management. Luckily, I had someone after that that was a a much better mentor, but just a cliche boss that, that, you know, Uh nothing but uh, it was like it was like reading something out of a, a, a comic book almost. Well, well, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about your history and what you're up to now. Mark, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, business application MVP, Mark Smith, also known as the NZ365 Guy. 
If you know of somebody that you would love to hear come on the Power Platform show, maybe somebody experienced in the industry with Power Apps uh, or the Power Platform, I'd love to hear from you. So please get in touch via LinkedIn and let me know. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to leave some feedback, give me a review, I'd appreciate it. You can go to nz365guy.com forward slash review. And there's an options, uh, there's a range of options based on the device you're using, etc. to leave a review. And with that, uh, stay safe out there and see you next time.